Welcome to the Fourth Watch Podcast, a curated conversation with some of the most interesting voices in the media. I'm Steve Krakauer. Today, I'm joined by NPR media correspondent David Folkenflik for a special episode focused entirely on the Hunter Biden laptop story and the media coverage of it. This is episode 33. On tech censorship, media suppression, what makes the press curious and skeptical, red flags and white flags, and what happens next, we start with the details of the original New York Post Hunter Biden laptop story. I was saying, you know, just before we started that, that we were briefly talking about Hunter Biden uh, when I interviewed you for for my my book that's coming out soon, Uncovered. Um, and it got me thinking, you know, I, I'd love to just sort of have a uh, fourth watch podcast conversation about it um, to put out uh, even sooner, because I do think, I mean, the, the story is not going away. Um, the Hunter Biden, Hunter Biden is still under investigation by the DOJ. Um, they're could be news on that any day now. Um, this, this hopefully does not become dated. I don't think it will be. Um, but I, I, I think it also is really a, a microcosm of so many elements of the media over the last five years. Um, and I also, you know, got the sense that maybe you think I, my interpretation of things was maybe a little bit off. So I think it's a good, good area to, to go into, um, just kind of have a conversation about and, and see where that goes. So let me start with this. I, I wanted to kind of lay out what I think are just kind of the general facts of how things went down in October 2020. Um, the the New York Post publishes a story, and I went back and looked because I was interested in. They ended up publishing multiple stories um, using what were what were emails from Hunter Biden's laptop, emails and and images. Uh, video, I imagine, um, from this Hunter Biden laptop, what they claimed was Hunter Biden's laptop, that uh, the original story was smoking gun email reveals how Hunter Biden introduced Ukrainian businessmen to VP dad. That was in October, uh, October 14th of 2020. Um, They, the, the sourcing on that was a little bit, you know, obviously unclear. They said that they got it. uh, It was originally the laptop or several laptops were left at a repair shop. Um, it was a, they described it as a customer brought in water damaged MacBook Pro for repair, never paid for the service or retrieved it or a hard drive of which its contents were stored. According to the shop owner who said he tried repeatedly to contact the client. We also know that that then it, they didn't get it from the repair shop. They got it from some version of a Rudy Giuliani combo with others. So that was the general basis for it. And then almost immediately, there was this crackdown on social media um, to make that link unaccessible from Twitter and from Facebook and other outlets. So, I mean, that's kind of the general kind of, you know, basis for this conversation, right? That's not uh, the only source of controversy that surrounded that that story, but certainly uh, the way in which social media, particularly, I believe, Twitter, uh, but to some degree, Facebook as well, uh, reacted to the story. Uh, was as though, almost as though it was conclusive that this was disinformation, I guess. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, it, it. I think it suspended the New York Post's actual Twitter account, if I'm not mistaken, for distributing that story, uh, which was, you know, from my standpoint, from most people's standpoint, not just one, but many steps too far. Mm. Uh, even as, and I assume we'll unpack some of this, there were some problems with the story or complications surrounding that story. 
Yeah, I definitely want to unpack it. But yeah, let's let's lay out. So they t- they took a step against the New York Post, which they've done before. Um, as we're talking, the the Babylon Bee and actually several accounts are under this step, which is a you cannot use your account. It's active. It's not deleted, but you must delete this particular tweet. Until you do that, uh, you, you you cannot gain access to it. That was the tweet to this original story. Um, the New York Post pushed back so they won't they wouldn't do it. But what was unprecedented, and I believe. Uh, before and after was that the link to the story was unshareable. So if I shared a link to it, my account would be locked. If I DM'd uh, a story, the, the story privately, the link, w- w- I would be uh, in trouble, but also the link itself would not work. So you could not click the link. Deadly, basically. And go, right, right. Yeah. No, again, these are extraordinary steps taken, uh, I think, reactive to all the criticisms and congressional hearings and threat and legislation and everything else that happened as a result of the role that social media played in the 2016 elections um, to try to say, look, here, here's how we were responsible we are. And in so doing, I think they wildly overreacted in the other direction in which they were shutting down uh, people's ability to share uh, material uh that whether or not problematic uh, under the First Amendment is certainly, uh, you know, look, Twitter's a private company. It's entitled to do what it wants, basically. You know, it has First Amendment rights, too, too to be selective. But there is a spirit of free speech that is important, I think, for these folks to uphold, uh, it, particularly involving political matters, particularly when they are so, you know, Facebook is more influential in the population writ large, but Twitter is very influential in the political and and journalistic spheres. And I don't think we should overlook that, even if it's a smaller universe of users. And, uh, you know, Twitter was really using extraordinarily muscular efforts to not just tamp this down, but kind of strangle it in a way that wasn't appropriate and in a way that was a problem, I think, because it uh, gave grist to the idea that uh, a thumb was being put on the scale. Uh, which is a frequent charge from the right. And when we can talk about more, one that my colleagues, uh, uh, I've looked at some, but my colleagues have looked at more extensively who cover digital media and that they and their counterparts and other news organizations looking hard to find it have actually found that not by and large to hold up. But it is a concern for conservatives. It is certainly uh, an articulated concern for conservative uh, political figures. And uh, I think this played right into it. I think it was... Uh, a mistake on the merits. I think it's wrong, uh, but I also think it was uh, just as a tactic or strategy, a mistake for the social media uh, platforms as well. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, all right. Last thing on before, just before we get into kind of the motivations, I, I do want to also lay the groundwork of of what. Uh, Facebook was was also an element of this, of the kind of the suppression to it. Uh, in fact, Andy Stone, uh, who was a comms uh, director, former uh, DCCC comms, and then he went to, to Facebook, um, he tweeted, while I will intentionally not link to the New York Post, I want to be clear that the story is eligible to be fact-checked by Facebook's third-party fact-checking partners. In the meantime, we are reducing its distribution on our platform. So this was what I described as pre-ducing uh, the, the amount of uh, potential traction of the story um, while it was being fact-checked. Uh, it, it eventually not be able to be shared on Facebook as well. So he tweeted that. Um, that's interesting. You mentioned 2016. Obviously, I think that that's, that's an element to this for sure. Um, the emails, uh, the Hillary Clinton emails, which I, I, I guess 
maybe there are parallels in how those emails were obtained. Um, although it's, it, it does feel like a different story as well. Although the main difference I would say is how the media treated those emails. Like, you know, the, 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 the criticism from the left of the media in 2016, particularly after Hillary Clinton ultimately lost the election was that they took these emails, which were dubiously obtained, um, but true and and show you know shine this light on it uh and and i wonder if you think so so you do kind of draw this parallel in this feeling in newsrooms potentially of we can't make that same mistake again yeah i mean let me say a couple things about 2016. uh i think that part of the problem with thinking about the emails was that they were uh hacked by as we now know and this is, you know, bipartisan conclusion as well as official intelligence agencies by folks on behalf of the Russian government to create havoc with our election. And that the press did this story and it got kind of merged with the email server story just because the word email was in it. And it kind of elevated the interest and in, in stuff around it. And I think that's true if you look at both the press appetite for it and the way in which conservative media and, and, and commentators talked about it. Like it just blurred all the lines. But it meant that <clears throat> Donna Brazil was interesting about this. Look, I've been critical of Donna Brazil and of uh, news organizations, including your, your former employer, uh, for hiring her while she had a role in the Democratic Party. Like I think that, no, you have to have, if you're on the payroll, you have to be clear where your loyalties lie. They need to either be the viewers of CNN or the viewers of somebody else or to the Democratic Party, but you cannot do both simultaneously. I mean, right. like whatever our concerns are- CNN when she was at CNN. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, whatever one's concerns are about people going from one White House to a, 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 a network. I mean, it's worse when you're doing it at the same time. I, I just don't see how you square that at all, right? But Brazil said something interesting. She's like, uh, she's like, I'm not gonna, I raised questions about whether she had shared some material about a debate with uh, 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 some figure inside the party, I think it was, which I think is a legitimate story. Mm -hmm. But I also thought her response was interesting. She said, I am not going to respond to that, not because you don't have questions that deserve answers, but because otherwise I validate the idea that I'm going to answer questions for the rest of possibly my life based on things that somebody illegally obtained in order to disrupt this election. And she's not lying. I mean, that's completely true. Uh, part of the problem with the press was not that it looked at those emails as trove information for coverage, but that it did so day after day after day after day after day. I mean, as a result of the mass leak, like that was the coverage. Clinton had no ability to run a campaign, really. It was in simply reactive mode. It is not the press's problem that somebody else has uh, is put in a difficult circumstance. And by the same token, the press has agency over what it decides to cover and whether it decides to let some other actor just dictate that. You know, Steve Bannon, in this case, had given an interview to, I think, a Dutch interviewer in something like August, September of 2020, saying we have, you know, Hunter Biden's computer, just wait and see. And it does seem very much that he was part of the, the chain of possession with, uh, or his circle was with Rudy Giuliani intending to get that out there. And we can talk about that in a minute. I don't want to let 2016 go past entirely that wasn't the only lesson we took from 2016. 2016 election, a lot of time was spent on uh, the Steele dossier. 
Yeah. And a lot of conversation was spent on it, often very speculatively, brought up in places like Mother Jones and other places. Uh, and then ultimately, BuzzFeed in January 2017, uh, as Trump is uh, gearing up to be inaugurated, publishes the Steele dossier. It's very explicit about what it can authenticate and what it can't in terms of the allegations there and says, we're looking into this, we're looking into that, whatever. But um, I mean, what a com compilation of rumor, slander, and truth that we just all slathered on. I mean, Trump makes it sound as though everybody did that. CNN, for example, reported about it without posting the whole thing. And right. while you can make some take some criticism of CNN and this or that, it made a real distinction between those two things. Those are two very different decisions. I think the Buzzly feed decision looks, in retrospect and even at the time, incredibly irresponsible uh, and unfair to Trump. And I think that similarly, uh, you know, it's it's presented as a dossier by a esteemed former uh, what is it MI five uh, agent yep. with American law enforcement and all this. It was taken seriously at top levels of government, which was true. You know, John McCain, a Republican, had walked this over effectively, the FBI, right? You know, so you've got people in both parties concerned about this. But, you know, I don't think the lesson of that is, well, this time we've got it on somebody on the left. So let's slap it up there, whether or not we can authenticate anything. I think the press needed to take a hard look in the mirror and say, we need to be really careful about what we put up there, the newsworthiness, the clarity, the insight that we have on whether or not it's true. And, uh, we can talk about the post thing and being very careful about presenting what it is we are going to present uh, uh, to the public. And I, I, I think this was one of those instances where the lessons of 2016 were like, let's not be jacked around by uh, bad actors necessarily. And, you know, you know, the, the, you know, Giuliani, forget Steve Bannon for a moment. Rudy Giuliani had two strikes against him, right? Um, the, Treasury Department of Donald Trump had said one of his close associates with whom he had worked on Ukraine issues was uh, deemed to be a, an agent uh, operating on behalf of Russian interests. And the second strike Julie Giuliani is that in the very beginning of 2020, Fox News's research department said, we can't believe what he says. Do not put him on our news shows. Yeah. So those are two real reasons for people to be nervous about what comes from the guy. How much of what happened with the Hunter Biden story had to do with source bias? And how much did it have to do with fear? First of all, I think that uh, the, the, I, I told Ben Smith this. I, I think that the, there's actually like sort of correlations be, between the way WikiLeaks acted with the emails and the way BuzzFeed acted with the Steele dossier. You know, that, that it was not really a journalistic endeavor necessarily in a traditional sense. It was more of a, you know, the act of, a, you know, radical transparency or something. Anyway, it, it, it put BuzzFeed obviously in a tough spot, but it also put the rest of the media in a tough spot once that was out there to ignore it. Um, and so, and certainly burned at that point. Um, I, I think it also raises the question, which certainly plays into this Hunter Biden story about potential coziness between sources in government and, and DC power and the, you know, what the right might call the deep state and what the left might call just sort of the intelligence community. Uh, and and the media and and the trust that that exists there maybe unnecessarily so, um, but it also I, I want to just go fast forward because it it wasn't just this idea of that that the Hunter Biden story the New York Post original story potentially was Russian disinformation it was 
it was taken to another level of being essentially untouchable. Um, there was a tweet that Kyle Griffin, who worked for MSNBC, put out. It says, you can discuss the obvious flaws and unanswerable questions in the report without amplifying what appears to be disinformation. No one should link to or share that New York Post report. And I, I remember Maggie Haberman of the New York Times, who used to work at the New York Post. I mean, the New York Post is not, is not InfoWars. Um, you know, it, it she, has- She has tabloid blood in her veins, for sure, on multiple yeah, levels. And, and, and also is, you know, the New York Post, while, you know, a, a tabloid in that sense is, is also not, um, you know, I mean, they're in the briefing room, they're, they're, they, they come from a right-leaning perspective. But anyway, Maggie shared the link and sort of questioned the sourcing, but just had the link in there. And she was trending that day, people calling her Maga Haberman for daring to link to the New York Post. Um, so I wonder what you think of the chilling effect that potentially Twitter overall had in the early days of treating the, the the Hunter Biden story, even if it was going to eventually be, you know, even if the, the, the decision was, let's step back a second, let's, let, let's verify it ourselves. But this idea of let's verify it ourselves, maybe, uh, you know, a month, a year, as we saw 18 months down the road. There was, there's a censoriousness, I think, on certain elements of, of Twitter that sort of gets into this uh, kind of um, here's what you can do and here's what you can't, you know, and be better, do this, do that. It's sort of the, uh, uh, I'm beyond not crazy about it. I, I think people deserve a chance to figure out how they want to deal with things. I want yeah. to equip them with the information they need to do so. You know, if you think it's misinformation, that's fair. Make your case. Don't link to it. That's fine. Use screen grabs. That's fine. But, uh, you know, other people may. And, you know, I've had people tell me you can't link to this. And I'm like, well, I'm rebutting it or I'm offering additional context. Right. And I choose to do so. There are times where I might not. Whatever. Like, I think that people get to use, make their choices. There are people who study the way in which social media informs uh, political debate and journalism and all that. Uh, and, you know, they will tell you that, you know, amplification can happen even in criticism and that it's, you know, uh, you know, use the line attributed to Mark Twain about uh, the truth get there, you know, falsehoods go halfway around the world before the truth gets its boots on, you know, and there's some truth to all of that, but, uh, uh, you know, look, I'm a media critic. People say that I, you know, can, you know, I'm telling people what to do or not to do, but, you know, I do feel there's a hall monitor kind of approach. And there's also kind of a hive mentality that sort of swarms in one direction and swarms in the other direction, like uh, a thousand tiny little fish in the sea, you know, it just goes as one. And yeah. There's, there's no nuance on Twitter. That's, that's for sure. I don't think I, you there know, can be, you know, but it should doesn't be. tend to dominate that people yeah. aren't like this and also these 117 points. No, <laughs> it's just this, right. you know, and, uh, uh, I think that's, you know, that rallies aside, but it doesn't tend to uh, shape discourse in a supple way that stands up to scrutiny and also uh, allows for a certain kind of constructive interaction. You know, I do think that there are people who felt for political reasons or journalistic reasons or some combination that this close to the election, simply having a constructive conversation about the debate over the story was essentially letting the story play out. Like it is, you are essentially not even tacitly, but giving into the logic of the story of the moment in a way that uh, uh, tends, those things just tend to 
blot out oxygen cable, for example, is terrible about letting there be multiple stories at a time. Right. You know, uh, and maybe new leadership at CNN will do it differently. But, you know, it sure seems oh. as though on all three stations that usually they have two or three at most. And so if Hunter Biden becomes a big story that day, that'll be 40 minutes or, or you know, take out the ads, you know, that'll be 30 minutes of, 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 of each hour. And that that is a lot of time to devote to a story with that many problems to it. So I don't, you know, I thought that stuff was out of hand. I got a lot of flack for what I said because I did have problems with that story. But but I'm not of the belief that people should have severed links, you yeah. know, uh, literally and figuratively uh, to, to, to that story. I think that was unfair to uh, the way in which political debate is supposed to happen in this country. Well, and that's the thing. I mean, I, I want to get to your problems with the with the story. What you saw is sort of red flags. Um, but you know, there wasn't a a sense necessarily from the media to to ignore it entirely. I mean, I, I get the instinct of saying, let's not snap, aggregate the New York Post, and you know, splash this across you know for you know our our, our wallpaper on on you know cable news, but. Uh, you know, not to put in an awkward spot, but one of the the big uh, tweets that has become kind of emblematic of this was from uh, NPR's public editor at the time, quoting Terrence Samuels, who said, we don't want to waste our time on stories that are not really stories. We don't want to waste the listeners and readers time on stories that are just pure distractions. Um, so that was that take on it. But it also, I, I want to just point to days later, a massive uh, five byline, two, three, four, five, six byline story from CNN that says U.S. authorities investigating if recently published emails are tied to Russian disinformation effort targeting Biden. This story was splashed across CNN uh, throughout, you know, the next basically the next weekend um, was a, a key component of the way uh, CNN's media show covered this that weekend was the is this Russian dis disinformation? Hmm, you know, we'll see. And and that was kind of how it was how it was dealt with. And so there was this kind of I don't want to say rush to potentially call it Russian disinformation, but to plant that seed about the story in the wake of, uh, you know, in, in the wake of the publication of it before the election to just kind of put that out there. All right, now that's to bed. Now we've got, you know, we've kind of spun this, this, this other element to this, obviously being spun from what was dozens, if not hundreds of foreign, uh, of, uh, of, you know, CIA and former CIA, uh, people putting this out there. I mean, it was, it was obviously, it wasn't just from the media. It was, it was from the intelligence community to, to spin it this way. Yeah. I think that, uh, you know, you had a bunch of folks. I mean, it's funny when you mentioned the deep state thing, right? Because, uh, you know, when I was in college in the late eighties, you would have had the political polls reversed in terms of who viewed the national security agency and the CIA and all these guys as the deep state, right? I'm not you know, sure it would have, it would have been the same. I think it would have stayed exactly that way until, you know, if, if not for Trump, I mean, really like, during Iraq, you know, like, it yeah. Would, oh, Iraq for sure. War, you know, yeah. Like all that, you know, so it's just, it's just sort of funny. These things are, are transient rather than fixed, I think in a lot of ways. Definitely. Um, but, uh, <clears throat> uh, God, there's so many threads to pick up here. Uh, I think that the pundits, um, part of the problem and weirdness is that TV has gotten in the business of hiring people who newspapers and NPR think of as sources, and they hire them to be in-house commentators. So they're kind of part of the team, and they're presented as part of the team. And it's not clear whether their loyalties are exactly to their former institutions 
to their political parties that might have helped to elevate them, even though they're ostensibly in nonpartisan positions. Um, and some of these folks serve in both for leaders of both parties. So it's not always clear. It's not and that's part of the enduring nature no. of the state. Right. Right. Um, um, or whether they're out for themselves. I mean, many of them are on corporate boards that they don't, it's not that they deny them, but they don't disclose them. You know, they might be defense contractors. They might be working for arms manufacturers. Maybe they're working for peace institutes. Like who the hell knows? Because it's never acknowledged. Right. And so you're just not clear as to what standpoint they're talking from. Are they getting as happened during the Iraq war, uh, certain kinds of classified briefings from which they're drawing to make sort of broad characterizations without disclosing anything, but it turns out often passing along um, what used to be called rosy scenarios and often, you know, more known as uh, political or, or, or ideological BS, right? Yeah. So, so these are just confusing things. So you have these folks coming out as sort of the heart of what's seemingly the national security establishment, which is to say all these ex- you know, national security agency chiefs and, you know, intelligence directorate chiefs and folks in the military, and whatever, saying it bear, they didn't, they gave themselves a little hedge. They said like it bears all the hallmarks of, and while we don't know, like I went back and reread that statement because I was on fire after this, just like, what the hell? And they gave themselves two or three hedges in that statement, but the direction and thrust was all in one, one right. direction, saying this is what it appears. And I think those folks who are, are on, who are paid as to be part of the media now need to go on to their respective outlets and address it. Like, I think that would be an important thing to do because reporters don't have clearance. Reporters don't have, uh, you know, uh, all the military awards, you know, they don't have all, all the stature. They don't have the access in quite that way. And so when the former head of uh, this division of the FBI or the National Security Agency says, uh, I think this is probably Russian misinformation, uh, which is not far-fetched, given what we've gone through, not just in, tw in 2016, but since. Um, they rely on that, and they use that as cover, and they say, well, this is something grounded. These people are putting their name to it. The people behind the Hunter Biden stuff aren't. <clears throat> They're letting us uh, you know, talk to them about it. They needed to unpack and talk about why and why they were mistaken to the extent they were mistaken, which I think they were. Um, but so that's, I think that's a, that's a, a, a transparency and accountability thing that is the media, but isn't exactly reporters. Yeah. And this is, I mean, we're, we're talking in the context of what we know now, which is that um, the New York times kind of sort of confirmed that the emails, at least a lot of the emails were authentic. And then the Washington Post did a, a, I think, a fantastic investigative report um, about how they looked into it and how they ultimately concluded uh, that, that be, essentially concluding that the contents of the laptop were authentic. Now, that doesn't get into here's, why. Here's what they, I, I think, to be fair, they were very precise. And I don't have the words up on my computer here, but I think they said, these, these are the emails we could authenticate and we're going with them. They subsequently, the Post published a piece in which they got into a little more depth, but uh, Craig Timberg and his colleagues, I thought, did a meticulous job. And uh, as Sally Busby said to me in a note, you know, she's like, we really tried to lay out how we did this and what we, you know, are thinking in this, in, in that there was a supplemental piece that kind of walked through their methodology and they, they went to technical experts to kind of look at things. Yeah. Philip Bump then, uh, you know, who sort of often comes to things with take, but he also you know, uh, he talked about ways in which there were concerns that there were signs on the laptop that it had been altered, that the material had been altered, not the emails they validated, 
but that the it was not intact from the way it might have been when it was on the laptop sort of uh, in pristine form. That there was a, that there were according to the posts consultants that there were signs of alterations in there or or, or of, how do I put it? I want to use the quite the right phrasing. There were sounds. There were signs in which, in some ways, things had been altered in a way that they couldn't validate that the laptop per se was authentic. They could validate that the emails were real. It sounds to me like the simplest answer, the Gordian knot slicing answer, is that the laptop is real and it may have gone through a number of hands of possessions. But all I'm saying is they were trying to be very specific about what they could authenticate, which I admire. Right. And I, I, I believe that the wording was that potentially altered is, is it was that, that there were signs of being potentially altered. But I, I would say, I mean, the biggest sign for me that that there was, you know, authenticity to the entirety of the contents of the laptop is that we have not heard ever from the Biden administration, from the Biden campaign that, um, that this is not true. Um, and in fact, I mean, you know, it has been uh, I interviewed Tucker Carlson who said, you know, I, I knew that it was real because my emails to Hunter Biden, which ultimately ended up coming out, were on there and people people saw them. And there would be no reason for, for that. to, You know, I, I, I was on one end of it. So I know that that was true. Um, so obviously, you know, we don't know every single last detail, but it seems at this point that the media has has shown that this is this is true, authentic. Coming up, my standard for publishing a news story. Is it true? Is it important? We'll get to that next. But first, I've written three separate times in the Fourth Watch newsletter about encouraging Jon Stewart segments featured on his Apple show, The Problem. It was going back to Stewart's time on Colbert with that hilarious Wuhan lab commentary segment. It seemed that Stewart was injecting a level of reality and sanity into the cultural discourse. But then came his recent episode called The Problem with White People. That was the actual title. The show featured a panel interview with Andrew Sullivan and some race essentialists, including one woman who works for a company where you can pay thousands of dollars to be told why you're racist over dinner. Stewart unfairly castigated Sullivan throughout the exchange, ultimately branding him a racist. Sullivan wrote about the whole experience in a must-read column in which he laid out how he was ambushed into the debate, but also on his takeaways from the entire ordeal. The point of the session was not to discuss anything, but to further enforce the dogma he had pronounced, wrote Sullivan. I'm a big boy and smiled through these assaults, but it does strike me as astounding that someone who once insisted that he believed in good faith debates and not circus-like theater, someone who postured as open-minded and disdainful of silly political grandstanding, behaved this unprofessionally. Sullivan then went on to meticulously dissect each issue raised in the show and provided a nuanced take on it all. The response from Jon Stewart? And can we stop with the lazy, woke shit anytime anyone disagrees with a conservative? Fuck, man, he tweeted. Jon Stewart doesn't get it. It's too bad because I thought there was real potential there. And maybe there still is. But because Stewart is not beholden to ratings or to threats of cultural ostracization, he should be better. But right now, the problem with Jon Stewart is that he's just like everyone else. More with David coming up, but first, the Fourth Watch podcast is presented by The First TV. The First is a new network for free speech and big ideas featuring Bill O'Reilly, Dana Lash, Buck Sexton, and more. It's a forum for new thought, new approaches, and an enlightening voice for a new America that embraces the founding principles and ideals that formed the greatest country on the planet. The First is free. Free speech, free ideas, free TV. You can watch The First TV on Pluto TV, Distro TV, Apple TV, The First TV app, and more. Go to thefirsttv.com to learn more. And now, Back to David Fulkenflick. I want to ask you, because I, I wrote at the time that there was a standard that I always think about as 
three things. Is it true? Is it important? And then kind of secondarily, is it legal? Was it obtained legally? Um, but if it's true and it's important, the third one is, is less important. I think about like the Snowden documents. True, certainly important. Legal, mm, no, not really, but important and true. So let's publish it. Let's put it out there. Not, not just drop it all out there like WikiLeaks does, but, but do what The Guardian did in, in a really responsible way, in a Pulitzer Prize winning way. So I guess I'm, I'm, I ask you now, in hindsight, do you think it was true and important what was on the laptop? I think that, let's start from, first off, let's start. <clears throat> I'm going to want to cycle back to something a bit later on. All right. But let's start from the proposition that immediate family members, adult immediate family members of powerful public officials uh, warrant scrutiny in their public and professional dealings. Sure. And at times that will stray into their private dealings as well, but those are very tough judgment calls. Uh, you know, a senator, a governor, a president cannot control what his or her family members do. Um, it is not news to us that Hunter Biden is an addict. That was not a revelation. It is not news to us that he has done uh, things that bring his judgment character into disrepute and like, you know, that are painful to his family. Um, it is not even news to us that he has sought to trade upon his family name right. or his wealth. But particularly that last element is worth reporting on. They are pressure points for powerful figures. Uh, you want to know uh, who has a claim on people close to governors and senators and the president. Uh, and that holds for the president's brother, who seems to be also willing to trade upon the Biden family name as well. I'm in favor of doing that kind of stuff, yeah. you know, of doing reporting on that. I think you that's say, important. It, 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 careers were made in the last administration on, on just that, I would say. Um, yeah. Careers were made in the last administration on just that. I think it is worth <clears throat> acknowledging that the degree of whether, whether or not criminal uh, personal corruption and uh, the degree of a complete uh, disregard of uh, lines that should be carefully drawn between public policy and personal interest uh, defined, I think, the Trump administration, many members of his family, and uh, the cabinet that he assembled. The number of folks who had to resign who uh, went under criminal review, uh, you know, Wilbur Ross's uh, behavior, uh, you know, just is astonishing array of, of folks who seem to me, to, whatever their political beliefs, uh, put the public's interest often second uh, to their own private interests. Uh, that should not be a concern only about one party. Right. Uh, and so whether or not Hunter Biden reached, uh, the, I mean, you know, you just seen this incredible thing where uh, Jared Kushner just landed a $2 billion deal uh, from the Saudis from a figure who's leading the investment company, Crown Prince, who has been accused by this government, our government, of ordering a murderous butchering hit on a columnist for one of America's leading news organizations. You know, now Jared Kushner's out of office, but 
his involvement in that part of the world was heavy and concerns were raised at that time about the level of Middle Eastern involvement in his investment in his, his operations. This is not at that level. And yet, I believe Hunter Biden's interests, Hunter Biden's effort to gin up business with figures in Ukraine, with figures in China, you know, figures wherever they may be around the world, uh, you know, during his father's vice presidency, during the in-between period, because it can shape our understanding of what the president knows or, or might know, or at least be aware of. Uh, and during the Biden's presidency, that is all valid. Right. That is all valid. I don't think it's, you know, we knew about Burisma before the Post stories and before the laptop was ever heard of. So the idea of this Ukraine entanglement is not new, but I think it's okay to do extra stories and reporting on that. I think it's fine for the New York Post to be reporting on that. Like the, the press shouldn't be defensive about that. That is the right thing to do. Now, so far, I think it's worth making clear that, you know, just as uh, there was a point at which we were like, well, we'd report on conflicts of interest, and then suddenly journalists were reporting on, and I think with some validity, but the appearance of conflicts of interest, in this case, it's, you know, I think reporters have to be very clear on what they can show of Joe Biden's awareness of this stuff and what they can't, even as many people in such areas will say, well, let's keep him you know, let's give him uh, plausible deniability, right? That's usually the way uh, political figures act. But I think Biden, <clears throat> his family, uh, his adult family are fair game for looking at their business entanglements, particularly when it comes to foreign actors and foreign actors who want a piece of, uh, you know, federal policy bent this way or that, or business uh, allowed abroad or or just a bite of the president. Well, That's at, at, the, at the very least, we know that, you know, I, I think that there, there are, certain emails that we don't know whether they were true, but that they imply Joe Biden's involvement in it. And obviously we saw things like Tony Bobolinsky on, on Fox News, who, you know, was, I, there's, I've never seen anything to say that he was not credible in what he said and his involvement in meeting with Joe Biden. Um, but at the very least, Joe Biden said during the, the campaign and in debates and on the trail that it was false, that it was Russia, that the laptop was not true. And so at the very least, he's implicated in the sense of he, I, whether he knew or not, it was, he was said incorrect information to the public and to the press about the laptop as, as we know now. So that does kind of implicate him on, on, on that level of this at the very least. Sure. Sure. I mean, I, I, I would say that, that, you know, I mean, Hunter Biden told, uh, what was it, uh, uh, told Gail at CBS that that he, that it could have been his. It could have been. Who knows? So, you know, like like you know, I, I don't know how anyone um, uh, completely denies that. You know what what interested me, you know, as a press critic, right, as doing some reporting on this, was that the original story called it a bombshell and said that it proved that a meeting happened. It didn't. It, 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 it was suggestive of a meeting having happened. Right. But, and it, it was possible there was a thing at Milano, a Cafe Milano in DC, where there was a drop by where somebody shook a hand. Although I went back to the White House 10 days ago and said, look, you guys told me that at that time you didn't have any evidence or anything to suggest that. I was like, do you acknowledge that that happened? And they said, we have no evidence or material to support anything, including, I think they said, including a handshake. You know, like they, they, they were, they, they were, they were, how do I put this? But these are meetings that would not be, 
they would not have evidence of having taken place. I mean, I don't, right, I don't but think usually sure, sure. And, and evidence. I think it's, I think it's possible it happened, but I also think that, uh, you know, uh, usually you get a photograph of the president. Usually you get something, you meet, you meet a vice president, a president, you know, most people who aren't journalists are going to get a picture with him. A lot of people who are journalists, which is crazy, are, uh, <coughs> you know, uh, <laughs> true. Yes. Get a picture of them. Um, I, if the post had approached this story uh, uh, less like the tabloid that it is, and less like the Murdoch tabloid that it is, which is to say, you know, Lachlan and, and and Rupert, despite misgivings about Trump as a person, were were all in on Trump politically. At that point, yeah. mm-hmm. at that point um, you know, I think the Trump uh, the Post would have gotten a decent bounce on the story. The way it was framed was that this was a smoking gun, and it was a bombshell report. And I think that we knew that. Like Biden, I, I think this stuff should be used to sort of, it, it should be the starting point rather than the landing place, right? The email, it should start your reporting. It should say, okay, there look like there are ties here. Let's go after this stuff. And instead they're like, look, we got it. Let's nail it to the wall. And that's, right. that's, 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 that's like a data point. That's like, great, start with that, go. Find me enter, I say, go, go get more. Get, show me that this happened. Show me where it happened. Show me and what that's happened. to prove your point. That, that's what we have seen with with other publications. Absolutely. But but eighteen months later, you know, there was this this clear incuriosity in the moment, but also for for what seemed like a long time. I don't think it would take eighteen months to get to the stories that the New York Times and the Washington Post ultimately let's, published. Let's let's acknowledge that maybe that there wasn't as much appetite, although you saw the wall street journal, which had been given the laptop first because they wanted the credibility of the journal and passed on it. Uh, you know, the journal did reporting at the time. It is my belief, which I cannot prove to you that these emails were because Hunter Biden is part of this federal investigation in I think Delaware, right? Yeah. Um, Prosecutors are showing the email to witnesses and their lawyers, and the witnesses and lawyers are not prevented from talking to reporters. So those who have been presented with material and have attested in in camera and secret testimony, but under oath to its veracity, can go to the post and say, this is true, I did this. So the post can talk to the people that they can figure out were witnesses and ask them about emails. And if the people have already talked to the feds, they kind of have done their civic duty and can talk to the press. So it doesn't surprise me that it takes seven, 10, 12, 13 months, because that's the process through which this stuff gets presented in a formal way, not through the New York Post, which only did a tiny excerpt of them, you know what I mean? So yeah. like the well, post can do reporting with the building blocks of the press procedures that pull stuff into the light of day in front of these guys and their lawyers. It, but it's like chicken or egg on some ways, right? This is the, there's a grand jury convening, as you mentioned, right now um, that's deciding whether they're going to charge Hunter Biden um, with at least a crime or two uh, and potentially potentially more. I mean, originally it was like tax stuff, which was a little bit less um, salacious, let's say, than what they're, there's now reporting from CNN and from others may be the direction of this investigation. And now we're seeing it, you know, and, and, and we'll see what happens next. The Fourth Watch Lightning Round is coming up, but first we close out our Hunter Biden conversation with some of the red flags David saw in the Post's original reporting. I think the media should have been at once very skeptical of the Post's framing and willing to go after it. And I think there would have been more value if 
places and said, here's what the post is alleging. Here's what we know and don't know to be the case. But, you know, there is something a little bit like BuzzFeed posting the steel dossier. Here's stuff that we know to be true and stuff that we know to be not true and stuff that we can't determine. And we're telling you what we know. And it's sort of putting a lot of stuff out there. So there was this, you know what I mean? Like, it's not exactly the same. The, 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 the New York Post is not exactly the Steele dossier, but when they're being used this transparently by, by Giuliani and Bannon, they're not not uh, in this way. You know, there's a reason why the person who was the lead writer inside the New York Post, and I talked to five people inside the Post, you know, there's a reason why he took his name off it. Yeah, I didn't break that. I think the New York Times wrote that, but whatever, whoever it was, you know, they were like beside themselves because they felt it was not solid and they couldn't. I mean, that's inside the New York Post. Sure. You know, I mean, there's great journalists at the New York Post, just like there are, you know, lots of. Sure. Of- and, and I will say, you know, this seems unfair, but the lead writer, at least the lead byline was uh, a woman named Emma Jo Morris. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, now at Breitbart. Uh, who had, I went back and looked as far as I could throughout all the databases. She had had, before that week, three bylines, I believe, all of which were during her time as a an intern at, I think, the Washington Free Beacon. And she'd worked for three and a half years as a producer for Sean Hannon. So, you know, if somebody had come off the Lawrence O'Donnell show, right, after having had an internship at... I don't know, the nation, and then went on to work for the Daily Costs, you know, would you hinge a major blockbuster bombshell story about, you know, Ron DeSantis on that? Well, that's... And and have that accepted in whole, right? Like, it's like, listen, if you're not being transparent about a lot of the information and you're not being transparent really about what you know or don't know, and you frame it in the most aggressive way possible in an outfit that is at that time politically aligned with the person's opposition, you know, it's not like you say, well, that's Bob Costa reporting it. So, you know, he's really solid. You know what I mean? I've got a point. I got a question of that. Uh, no, uh, the way it was splashed on the cover on that first day, for sure, you know, led to it, I guess though it gets to, and that's my, my, my final thing is the, the degrees of it. It's one thing to say, we're not, you know, we're going to be a little bit skeptical of the post reporting. It's another to what felt like, the the lack of defense of the New York Post when it came to the tech censorship and and there seemed to be this sense of galvanizing behind this idea that this story needs to be suppressed the the, the tech companies are doing the right thing by, uh, by by the way that they're treating this story. You and I often trade the phrase with each other. Twitter is not real life, right? Yeah. And uh, the censoriousness we talked about on Twitter. Uh, uh, I don't think was reflected in the coverage of what happened because NPR and the New York Times, LA Times, whomever, we all covered what, what Twitter did and what Facebook did. And, and it was pretty critical coverage. And they, they, they folded on that relatively quickly. Uh, it, it shouldn't have happened. I mean, it was wrong. It was, I mean, you know, reporters don't often say right, wrong, but like that was wrong. Uh, and they folded on that because the, in the media, their major institutions were not supporting that. You know, I don't think the Washington Post or the Miami Herald wants that to happen. Right. But, right. you know, like the Miami Herald and, and McClatchy, which is a news organization I really respect, did this stuff 
that is sort of steel dossier adjacent about uh, Michael Cohen going to Prague. Yeah. And he was able yeah. to show his passport. He'd never been there. And they stuck by it to this day. They've never taken that story back. They've right. acknowledged right. that its questions have been raised, but they've never taken the story back. I think that's crazy. You know, but, you know, Facebook is not preventing that story from being shared. Never. Has. So never I think has. that that's, you know, I think there are problems there. I think the press should have done more in the moment to say, let's sort through this is what we know and this is what we don't know. And this is as far as we can go. Uh, but, uh, you know, there is an asymmetry in the media as there is in much of politics at the moment to where the Washington Post is, is somehow assigned to the left if it's not embracing the right. And that's not always the case. You know, uh, I want to be clear. It's something I, I should always say at the outset of our things, although I know you know this, which is I don't speak for NPR. No. They pay me to report on the media, including NPR at times. So I don't speak for the leadership. They don't speak to me. Sometimes it's fine. Sometimes it's a little uncomfortable for them. But to their credit, they always give me latitude to do whatever to, I think, an unparalleled. I don't think anybody has the, the, the degree of latitude I have as long as I confine it to you know, reporting and 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 professional analysis, right? So uh, we, uh, our, my colleague, uh, our managing editor, acting executive editor, Terry Samuel, uh, had this quote that was used by someone in the office of the ombudsman, just as an out quote to put up on Twitter to explain sort of that we're stands. They said, you know, we don't want to waste people's time with whatever. It didn't mean we weren't reporting on it. Right. What people extrapolated from that was that reporters were stopped from reporting on it. And my colleague, Laura Sullivan, has said on Twitter, you know, we should have done more, whatever. I think she, she may have been right. We may, all of us in the media could have done, you know, uh, some more piece on it. But I had colleagues who were working extremely hard to obtain the laptop so we could review it and that we could do stuff. And Giuliani's people and his camp and his lawyers and others said no. And they did that, by the way, to the New York Times, too. And then what they said, what Giuliani said to the Times is said, because you guys would want to authenticate everything. Hmm. You know, that is problematic for us. That is a flag for us that we aren't sure that we want to run with a ideological and tabloid outlets assessment based on, a, excuse me, that we don't want to re rely on just amplifying a tabloid's kind of somewhat partisanly framed assessment of this material, which may well prove to be true, but may not. Reporters, by the way, are told things all the time, some of which we believe to be true about affairs, about conflicts of interest about dirty deals, whatever. If we don't have proof or at least strong evidence to suggest it, we don't go with it. Like, so, you know, the idea that, well, reporters news, you know, Gawker was created on the premise that major news organizations withheld stuff from the public that might be of interesting and might well prove to be true. That was Gawker's raison d'etre. And they published Hulk Hogan having sex, you know, with somebody <laughs> and uh, they well, got taken out yeah. by Peter Thiel, right? So, but the dossier, yeah, the, the dossier analogy was even more, I think, uh, more apt uh, in that because, you know, there was certainly some running with stories that were a little bit less authenticated during the last, you know, four years of the Trump mission. Okay, David, we appreciate your time. Last thing, one, six questions in 60 seconds. Where were you born? Uh, Rochester, New York. You're the media correspondent for NPR. What's one benefit and one cost of the role? <laughs> uh, there's so many benefits. Uh, I love this mission of the network uh, and the uh, intensity of the audience. Uh, they just are passionate about the information, the news. They identify with who you are. It's just a, it's an, unlike any other relationship uh, with an audience I've ever experienced. Uh, you know, people are not just listeners, but often members of public radio. Uh, so they they think they kind of are owners, and there's a real 
you know, that, that comes at times with a, a sense of, uh, Hey, you, you, you answer to me. And so, you know, you offer patiently emailing back and forth or DMing with people who are online. Actually, they're always a little astonished you respond and then very polite after the fact, but sometimes pretty are, people are pretty intense right. uh, and they feel they know you and they feel they can go after you. Uh, so it's a, you know, it's a, uh, uh, you know, the online world can be kind of unforgiving too. True. True. Who's someone who's been a mentor for you? Uh, you know, I've had a lot of people that I'm happy to call mentors. Uh, uh, John Carroll was mentor of the uh, Baltimore Sun, uh, who really, I think, uh, mentored me in a lot of ways about journalism and about thinking broadly. Uh, uh, you know, I learned so much from a guy like David Simon at the Sun as well, very different figure. Uh, quietly, actually, people like uh, Scott Sheen, who was a, a national security reporter for the Sun before the Times had been in Russia, just uh, was just always able to ask questions like, is this the right way to do it? Is this not? Uh, uh, Who's one person you really like professionally or personally that may surprise people? Uh, you know, like Andrew Breitbart and I always had a really great rapport. Uh, mm. You know, he did a lot of things that outraged a lot of people on the left, outraged a lot of people in journalism. Uh, uh, I found him open to conversation. And, uh, That's interesting. Uh, we always had a good time talking together. I thought it was just... Uh, manic, interesting, frenetic, yeah. intense uh, guy who often allowed his impulses to get the better of him and sometimes hurt himself and others in the process. But uh, at the same time, uh, I'm open to people who are willing to talk and think and, and, and uh, 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 tease things out and you know, rather than just sort of uh, harangue at you. I like that. Uh, who's one person, whether at NPR or, or anywhere else, that you think is really interesting or talented that isn't getting enough attention right now? Wow, that's great. Who's one person at NPR or other places who are interesting and talented and uh, aren't getting enough attention right now? <laughs> um, well, it's amazing because, you know, I am online and on social media and listening to podcasts and whatever, but, you know, I feel like when I discover people, they've already been discovered uh, so much. I'm amazed by my colleagues. You know, I yeah. just went with the producer, Mark Rivers, uh, to L.A. to do stories about the relationship between the press and the media. And, uh, you know, it's the first time we've met. As you know, we've spoken a couple of times by phone and he produces for morning editions. So a lot of things what he's doing is producing and editing things that have already been done. Uh, but his thoughtfulness and sophistication and, and uh, queries and like he was, he was an equal partner out there when we did this thing. I thought it was just magic working with That's awesome. All right, last one real quick. One year from today, what's one prediction for the media? Uh, I think things that will have been stated as absolutes and verities uh, will be uh, sort of quickly abandoned, uh, much like uh, you just heard Netflix's uh, CEO yeah. say, uh, oh, oh, that thing where I said we'd never take ads for any tier of service, uh, uh, we're jettisoning that now. David Falkenflick, thanks so much. Thank you, brother. Thanks so much, David Falkenflick. Uh, I really enjoyed these kind of back and forth conversations going in depth. We did one about January 6th. Recently, you can go check that out in the archives. Uh, and I want to do more of them. So hopefully we can do that in the future. Remember, Fourth Watch is not just a podcast. It's also a newsletter. Subscribe for free at fourthwatch.media. Join me. Let's build a better media together. If you like the music in the show as I do, check out the artist who created it. That's Super Duper, Super Duper Music on Instagram. The song is Far From Falling. Download it wherever you get your music. And download this show 
and follow. That's the new thing on Apple these days. Follow this podcast uh, on Apple or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Back soon, I think. Stay safe. Talk to you then.